Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are joined by co-founders of Acid League, Scott Friedman and Alan Mai. Scott is a serial entrepreneur, and Alan Mai is a food scientist. Together, the two of them were able to come up with an idea that can now be seen on the shelves at Whole Foods. Acid League is not your typical vinegar you see on the shelves of your local grocery store. They describe their products as flavor-tripping, living vinegars, drinks, sauces, condiments, and beyond. In 2019, Alan Mai and Scott Friedman began their mission to ferment as many foods as possible to discover which ones could create a unique vinegar. Since the start of the Toronto-based business, they have launched over 500 different vinegars with a large array of ingredients. We are pumped to host Scott and Alan on the podcast, so let's jump right in. Fellas, thank you for both for being here today. Hello, hello. Awesome. Well, I just want to hear in your own words, we we took our guess at a little bit of your origin story, but uh, in your own words, Scott, how did we get into this? The origin story starts with an almost divorce because I was making vinegar in my basement and, uh, you know, vinegar has a little scent to it. Um, yeah, I just wanted good vinegar. I was taking honey from, I, I live outside the city. Um, I was taking honey. I, I had bees out there and, um, was taking things that were growing. I was like, can we make vinegar from this? You know? And, uh, that's what it started. I, my 14 year old at the time leaf, um, we just decided we would have fun and make some vinegar in the basement and, you know, vinegar, you kind of make it and you, not all vinegar, but a lot of vinegar, you leave it for a long time and it, you know, slowly alcohol turns to acid. And next thing you know, we had about 50 jars in the basement. It looked like Willy Wonka's kind of vinegar factory. And my <laughs> wife, you know, and, and the scent, you know, you'd open the basement door and, and like a waft of vinegar rolls into the living room. So, you know, at one point I figured I had a problem. Um, but, you know, how did, how did a little hobby become a business? Um, so there's actually four founders of Acid League. Um, Alan, myself, and another food scientist named uh, Cole and Ray, who's kind of the visionary behind the look and the feel of Acid League. And uh, I was uh, a friend, a mutual friend introduced me to Cole and said, look, Cole's a food scientist. He's, he's amazing, you know, he's creative. He worked in innovation. You got to meet him. I said, okay, I'll meet him. Um, we go for coffee and we meet, we really like each other. We hit it off and uh, we don't talk about Acid League because as a serial entrepreneur, I was not supposed to start another business. I have too many businesses and um, I, you know, I, I ran an innovation consultancy for 10 years and, and sold it uh, back in 2016. I swore I would do all things food, but not yet another thing in food. Um, unfortunately, I called Cole back the next day and I said, wait, I got this idea. I'm making a lot of things in my basement. He probably thought I was crazy. Um, <laughs> I want to talk to you. I, I think it's a great business. And he says, well, let me call a friend. And he calls Alan and he says, okay, let's get together. I'm, you know, what do you, what do you have to say? So I got together and I walked them through the whole story of what I was doing in my basement and, and basically said, here's the thing, right? You know, Samin Nazarat, she wrote a book, salt, acid, fat, heat, um, go to the vinegar aisle. What does it look like? It looks like it's 1989, you know? Mm. And what if we were to do what, you know, Ben and Jerry's did to ice cream, in vinegar, but not just for vinegar, but let's take it across the whole spectrum. Almost every condiment, every salad dressing, everything you eat in the center of the store has vinegar often. And so what we really set out to do that day was to build a platform brand around all things acid. And, uh, you know, started that summer, summer of 19 by just making literally hundreds, fermenting almost everything we could find to kind of begin building that foundational base to what is now obviously emerging into many things acid. Wow. So Alan, when you stepped into uh, this Willy Wonka basement of, <laughs> of fermented goods <laughs> and you hear the idea, what, what are you thinking? I think I was excited for, for many reasons. Um, you know, coming out of the, coming out of food science, you know, you, you look at the, you look at big food and really, 
I was really excited to become a food scientist. And what I found in my experiences was really just a disconnect between, you know, why I loved food. You know, I come from the culinary world. I worked in kitchens before. So did Cole. You know, that's why we became friends initially. And, you know, being a, being a product developer really at Big Food is very different. <laughs> and typically at, a, at any company, no matter who it is, you're really kind of constrained typically um, to working on one thing <laughs> uh, for, for, for forever. <laughs> and this was an opportunity, as you know, Scott has kind of alluded to, this is kind of an opportunity to play and dabble in all sorts of things, you know. Um, and I think that's why the three of us got along too right away. Uh, yeah. Our, our shared love of food, you know, the, the way we saw food, the way we loved food. Um, so right away, uh, super, super excited. And, you know, I think in the, I think in the moment as well, it was, it was kind of a turning point because I was starting to maybe be a little bit worried that, you know, me going into food science wasn't going to provide me with, you know, the meaning that I, that I had hoped it would. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me, you're the first food scientist I've ever met. Really? What does that, yeah, what does that entail? What does that mean? What is a food scientist typically uh, trained to do? Yeah, well, there's, there's all sorts of things that a food scientist can do. Um, ultimately, how I would look at it is they're involved in anything <laughs> as it relates to, to ensuring that, you know, food that is farmed, is treated and then processed in a way um, such that it reaches either, you know, your, your restaurants, you know, like restaurants are ordering food. Um, it's traveled a long way. So mm -hmm. you could be involved in, you know, designing, you know, the conditions for, for you know, refrigerated trucks or whatever, uh, such that produce can read its reach its final destination. You could be involved in, you know, a lot more know kind of what, what more what we do which is which is designing food products um uh you know everything on the grocery everything in the grocery store really making you know, sure no one dies I, I like I yeah that's that. i mean that's a making part sure of it no one... <laughs> making sure yeah that's probably important as well uh <laughs> but yeah that's that, that's another aspect as well right like food quality making sure no one no one dies <laughs> yeah and uh yeah i mean there's all sorts of things there's regulatory stuff as well you know a lot of people end up working in government essentially and, and ensuring you know the fda and the cfia i guess in canada and making sure that um everyone abides by the rules it's actually something that i'm less interested in um personally but i it, it's just so important and it's actually something that both of us should be proud of you know in, in the us and canada that the quality of food that we get relative to the rest of the world is actually exceptionally high mm. So there's a regulatory and safety side to it. Is there also another branch of it that's more on the creative side? And is that kind of what you're getting to do here? Yeah, that's that's kind of why I got in the game. <laughs> um, it was an opportunity, you know, when I when I was working in restaurants, it was it was recreating, you know, dishes five hundred times a night, <laughs> doing the same thing five hundred times a night, and it wasn't fulfilling my kind of creative desire. Yeah. And ultimately, I saw food science initially as an opportunity to create something and share it with even more than 500 people a night, ultimately. The idea of it was, was pretty exciting. Um, and yeah, you know, R&D, product development, is, is why I got in the game. And I guess what we've done at Asset League that's, a, that's kind of special is, you know, we've, we've created something here that gives us the ability to play in a lot more. Um, than you know a typical food company might awesome we have a rule, we have a rule. Just, yeah <laughs> and, and it, was a, it was a rule that we decided on day one um i, I think alan and, and cole in particular looked at me like i was crazy but i said we're going to create one new product a week we're going to build the muscle the ecosystem mm -hmm. the manufacturing capability the marketing capability the branding the packaging the design to do one new product a week because initially number one we have what i call fiad which is kind of food idea add <laughs> um, but, but two was we had no idea how we were going to, we have a bit of a pet peeve, right? Which is, you know, you go to Instagram and everybody takes the same, like beautiful pictures of the same three products that they sell. And we thought, how could we, you know, engage the, this audience around food and, and how do we 
build content and how do we, you know, how do we build the brand? How do we build the business? And we thought, okay, we'll drop a new, like why can H&M and Zara drop, you know, clothing every week? Let's drop a food product every week. And so that's what we've been doing. We're up to, I think we've dropped and sold over 60 products in the, wow. uh, coming on a year. We're not quite at a year. So we're actually, we're, we're beating the one per week um, ratio, but that is like part of the ethos, create. Yeah, I love that. So you guys have your, you invite them over to the Batcave, the Vinegar Batcave, and then you decide to start this company. Where where do you guys go from there? You mentioned creating this, but like, tell me more about how this became a company, how this went just from sure. home brewing kind of thing to like an actual company now. Sure. So uh, there's two things. Um, we were incubated at the University of Guelph. So they have a pilot plant. Um, it's where Alan and Cole went to school. It's an amazing place because they'll literally be able to incubate a food business with manufacturing machinery, you know, food science labs, et cetera. So they gave us a little space. They gave us, it was almost like the size of a big closet. And we said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Summer of 19, we're just going to make vinegar all summer. Mm. And we're going to learn everything we need to learn, how to make it slow, how to make it long, how to ferment, how to alkalize, like how to basically, you know, there aren't, there's a few books about how to make vinegar, but when you're trying to kind of, you know, change how things are done and, and make vinegar from things that haven't historically been done, it, it takes quite a bit of experience. So we, we made literally hundreds of types of vinegar that summer, everything from a, a coffee Kahlua vinegar to a Campari vinegar to vinegars made from cantaloupes and Tuscan melons and, you know, every berry you can imagine, banana peel vinegar, mixed vinegars, spice vinegars, seaweed vinegars, like you, na you name it. But where it became a business was we literally sent these little jars to Whole Foods. Um, I, um, for, you know, kind of was once removed from a couple buyers of Whole Foods from past lives. Um, and so we send these little jars with a little dropper, kind of dropper bottles to Whole Foods. And, um, you know, very polite response. Hey, you know, we'd love to try the vinegars. Like, you know, don't have room right now. And, you know, the, the review's kind of done, but hey, we'd love to try them. And um, so we went down to Austin and uh, with all these vials on the table and, you know, everybody's kind of dropping vinegar in there, in their <laughs> and some people were using spoons and a couple of people went, what's going on in that room? You know, and a few other people came in and next thing you know, 90 minutes went by and a buyer who, um, you know, loved what, what we were up to turned to me and said, we'd love to launch this nationally, but, can you guys make enough? And I went, of course, absolutely. And by then we developed a whole production system and, you know, we were getting ready to kind of, you know, open our first facility and all that. And I, I said, yes, they said, great. You know, next thing you know, the paperwork came across the line. And, and at that point we knew we had a launch um, in October. Wow. Uh, sorry, a launch in August. It was last August. We didn't know COVID was going to hit. It was, um, it was in October, but um, yeah. That Dude. was the start. And then we had it. Then we had a like a start line. It was like, okay. Okay. So hold on. But this doesn't happen very often. But I know it. That's what I'm like. It all sounds too easy. I mean, that's people what? don't. I, I, yeah. It's like, you know, I, I, I joke. It's like, you know, you have a minor league player that's called up to kind of like clean the bats. And, you know, then they end up at the World Series in the World Series game seven and, you know, somehow they come to bat with the bases loaded and hit a home run in the bottom of the tenth or something. Like that being said, I wouldn't describe it as easy. But anyway, <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. It was yes. a lot of hard work. I said it almost sounded easy. Not yeah. that it was easy. Yeah. Um, what's What's interesting to me is that you guys had already started to set up the production before you had your first big purchase order. Basically, what was the thinking behind that? Um, I, we often have, um, flashbacks, I think, um, because at one point we said, well, how are we going to bottle this? And we thought, well, let's put it in a spirits bottle. You know, spirits bottles are so much nicer. And we went, that's an amazing idea. And so Alan went out, uh, made some phone calls. Next thing you know, we're talking to Italian suppliers of, you know, high speed spirits bottling lines, you know, stuff that like whiskey brands get use and with automatic corkers, you know, that punches corks into the bottle, like at that speed. And, uh, 
we thankfully up in Canada, we have some great support from a whole bunch of institutions, but um, a, a government, a kind of not governmental organization, but a bank affiliated with the development of food businesses in Canada um, came in and said, we'll support you, even though, you know, you're a startup. We'll, we'll support you with some machinery. And so we went out and we bought this high-speed Italian bottling line. Wow. And, and, you know, which is what you see our products in today, all of our products. And um, we, I think we always thought that uh, there was a huge market at retail. Like if you walk the vinegar aisle, you saw red vinegar, you know, balsamic, white wine, a couple things. But it was really, it's, it, it hasn't had much change in a very no. long time. So... So when we walk the halls now, what are we going to see from you guys that, that's brought to that category? Yeah. So, I mean, you'll see a bunch of things. Um, you'll see alternative flavored vinegar. So when we launched at Whole Foods, we launched with a strawberry rosé. So it was a vinegar made from fermented strawberries and rosé wine. Uh, we had a Meyer lemon honey. So it's literally a, a vinegar, a honey vinegar with Meyer lemon and Meyer lemon peel. And then probably one that is my personal favorite is Garden Heat. Uh, probably Alan's, you know, a lot of us, but it's a vegetable vinegar. So it's huh. made with vegetables and think of it as kind of this almost very vegetal, sweet, umami kind of sour vinegar. So it's, it, it just adds so much to almost anything like a, even a Bloody Mary. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, so that's kind of what we did in vinegar. Um, we subsequently, because it evolved, we ended up talking to another Whole Foods buyer who said, wait, can you make vinaigrettes with these vinegars? At which point we went, absolutely. And so a few months later in February, we launched three vinaigrettes, um, which kind of allowed us to just keep pushing on flavor. Um, you know, it was a toasted Thai coconut it was a, we had a mango jalapeno vinegar and we created a mango jalapeno cilantro vinaigrette. God, that sounds um, awesome. And, uh, and then we did um, a yuzu and pink peppercorn. So kind of bright yellowish kind of vinaigrette with a lot of pink peppercorn flecks. So you, know, you, get, you get a feel for kind of how it evolved. And, All right, guys, uh, you got me salivating. Now, I don't mean to put pressure on you on the podcast, but the other food companies we've had on here have sent me nice samples of, of their foods. Power covet. I'm just saying, you can't be promoting this good of stuff. and not, I, I need my pantry full of this stuff. Uh, you, now, need, you need a bottle of our coffee chaga living tonic, right? It's morning, so you should be drinking one of our living tonics. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds cool. <laughs> guys. With your both your mad scientists vinegar in a, in a morning cocktail. Okay. All right. I'm down. I'm down. Alan, my, my food scientist friend, mm -hmm. can you educate me on the uses of vinegar? And just this is a this is a part of cooking that I don't know as much about. Like why like what is vinegar used for? Is it just for, you know, I put some oil and vinegar on my sandwiches sometimes, right? Like what, yeah, what, yeah. what are, what are the uses of it? And also, is there some, some health side of this as well that you guys are taking an angle on or no, like gut kind of stuff. Uh, so just talk to me about that some. Yeah. So, I mean, vinegar is one of these things. I, I don't think you're alone in, in really not being mindful of vinegar, even though you probably have a bunch in your, in your pantry. Yes. Um, I rarely use it because I don't know what to use it for. <laughs> it's, it's so foundational, actually. I mean, that's, it, it kind of goes back to, you know, Scott mentioning Samin Nazareth talking about salt, acid, fat, heat. I forget the order, but, you know, acid is, is one of those core elements um, to any dish. It's really going to lift every other flavor and, and, and balance a dish in a, in a very unique way that really no other, no other sensory characteristic could do. So vinegar is one of those one of those ways, right? Acetic acid is one of those acids. And really it's been used since forever. Uh, I mean, since wine, since we had wine, we've had vinegar. <laughs> and um, just from I mean, the fermentation process, yeah, right? Traditionally, I mean, when, when wine went bad, it turned into vinegar. I mean, not very good vinegar. We've gotten better at making vinegar, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's really can be used and acidity should be used in everything you eat really. Um, you know, how, how I would normally think about it is, is balancing the, the fat side of things, which is why you always have salad dressings where you have one part oil, right? That's the fat. Yeah. And, 
and then vinegar on the other side. Um, but you know, it, it's not just for salads. When you, when you think about cooking anything, um, if you're, if you're making, I don't know, a grain bowl or anything like that, it's not just dressings. You can actually, you know, make sauces huh. with vinegar. It's, it's kind of probably why, I mean, I talked about being excited about innovating and being in other spaces when, you know, the three of us got together for the first time. Uh, but but that was why, it, you know, it, it's because of the fact that vinegar is necessary, I suppose, in all these other categories. I mean, sauces, every sauce that you find, if, if, if you were to actually look at it, uses vinegar. In fact, every sauce or every hot sauce or anything like that uses white distilled vinegar because huh. it's kind of just the only thing that's being mass produced today. <laughs> uh, I mean, red wine vinegar, white wine vinegar, of course, but... You know, if, if you look at if you look at any of the center of the grocery store kind of products, they'll be using white vinegar, and it's quite frankly bland, tasteless. Actually, it could even it's actually not very good tasting at all. Um, you know, that was kind of the idea when we first talked about what vinegar could be. Yes, of course, you know, Scott's talking about how the vinegar oil is kind of dated, but yeah, and so that's that's kind of exciting to to kind of go after that um, in a vacuum. But what got me more excited and ultimately what got me really excited was that there are, you know, mango habanero hot sauces using white vinegar. Why isn't it using a mango vinegar? Mm. You know? um, and, and this could be found all across the grocery store today. And, and I think that's when we really got excited because, and that's why we wanted to ferment everything as well. Because we were like, even if they aren't great um, even if they aren't great on their own, perhaps they could actually be used in a very delicious way in creating other things like sauces. And that's what you kind of find today in our, our proxy, our non-alcoholic wine, is we, we have very unique, we don't even produce them for any other reason. You know, sometimes we'll just make vinegars just for a beverage, um, just to put in that beverage. Um, from a food science perspective, you know, driving pH down, making a product more acidic obviously extends the shelf life. So that's very convenient as well. Just happens to be a very convenient, uh, you know, vinegar is actually just necessary or, mm. or acid is actually just necessary to, to essentially go back to, to what we were talking about, not kill people. <laughs> um, it has antimicrobial effects as well. So, um, Kind of why it's encouraged by some people to to kind of use it in your salads because it actually does clean you know some of the the more i'll get a little bit technical but like you know e coli is, is often your lettuce it, yeah on lettuce and and huh. vinegar and acetic acid is more antimicrobial than any other acid so um yeah i'll talk a little I'll bit about living vinegar because I, I know it's a, a term that we often use yeah we we like these kind of dual meaning <laughs> sayings. Um, but yeah, the, the, we say living vinegar because it also has that gut, that, that gut health aspect. You know, I think when we first talked about vinegars, um, yes, we, it is dated, but we did acknowledge that Bragg's in particular was, was kind of making a name for themselves. With the um, apple cider vinegar. Yeah. They, they, they were probably the first kind of shock to the to the vinegar <laughs> aisle in a long long time and i think a huge part of it was the fact that um you know the, the health aspect essentially the the gut health aspect that's like, the only oh, reason i've ever heard someone take this stuff it tastes like feet <laughs> exactly and, and um ultimately you know people are i mean the the not, not only, you know, traditional uses is, is, is on food and everything like that, but, you know, there's a lot of people that take, um, there's a lot of people that take shots essentially in, oh, yeah. in the morning. And, you know, when we tried it as well, uh, to be fair, it wasn't my favorite flavor. <laughs> um, so we, we thought, well, our vitamins are tasting amazing. They have all the same, they have all the same health benefits. You know, why, why, why couldn't we create something that mm. actually tastes good, that has all the same benefits? And then at, at the same time, I think actually initially it was 
can apple cider vinegar taste better? That was probably the first step. And then when we when we started fermenting everything, we were like, yeah, you know, all this, all everything that we make has the same benefits, but you're not restricted to just apple cider vinegar anymore, which is kind of how our living tonics, tonics were birthed, actually. That's great news. I mean, we, we were doing that for a little bit just for overall health and whatever. And I was like, I just can't do this. I mean, literally it smells and tastes like feet. And so I'm just going to roll the, I'm going to roll the, the, the health dice and just go without it, you know? But if you guys created something that actually tastes good, I'd be totally happy to build that into a regimen, you know, I think that's brilliant. Include that in the sample pack. Yeah. There we go. I'm just saying in general, like I, I can name a dozen friends right now that take apple cider vinegar every day and they hate the way it tastes. They close no, their, like, that was the insight. So, yeah. So you insight. guys create How something create that tastes good. I want you to feel like you're drinking a morning cocktail. Yeah. Yes. That, that, and that's what you'll, you'll, you'll see what we send you. Like, okay. Bartenders are using vinegar and they're using it because it's a great acid component. They're just balancing it. And I've never heard of vinegar out of other things and make it taste great. Then All right. great. Guys, I got an idea for you. You need yeah. to start a you need to start a YouTube show where it's actually around cooking in the sense of like, did you know vinegar could be used for this? Did you know like again, most people don't have a clue what to do with the vinegar that's in their shelves. Good idea. And you just so happen to be using your vinegar with all the crazy flavors for the for that salad. I don't know much about cooking. I you watched- have like the encyclopedia. Yes. Uh, no, I'm serious. Like I watched all the, the chef's tables and all that kind of stuff because I want to know more about food. I think if you guys got in the kitchen and showed people what you could do with acid, right? What you could do in your salads and your drinks and your whatever, and then you featured your mango habanero, whatever, you'd have a YouTube hit as well as be selling products. Just saying. Just saying. It's, it's not a bad idea. We need a marketing consultant, don't we? I, <laughs> I wish, man. That's probably the only good marketing idea I've ever had. I'm not very, I'm not very good at marketing, uh, but take that one for free. No charge. No awesome. charge. Awesome. Uh, Scott, with your business experience and the, the variety of businesses you've started, where has this fallen on the scale of challenging um, in comparison to the other ones? Is this a totally unique kind of business? Have you built ones like this before? Has there been any key differences? They're all different, but the timing is different. Um, and you'll hear this from other founders in the food space. Now, we're in a renaissance when it comes to being in the food business. Um, you know, if you tried to raise money for a food business back in 1999 or 2000, 2005, it was not easy. That There wasn't that much venture money. There weren't, you know, too many venture funds specializing in food. Today, there are many. That's one, you know, access to capital. Two, you didn't have this thing called the internet, or you certainly didn't have this thing called D2C brands, and you didn't have this thing called subscription, and you didn't have this thing called Shopify. And if you wanted to build a food business 10 years ago, you had to knock on the doors of Whole Foods. And if you didn't get those stores and those doors, as they call them, good luck. Yeah. Um, Good luck selling food on the internet, you know, not that long ago. Um, It wasn't like books in 96, you know, food's taken a lot longer in many ways. that's two. Three, it's hard to set up a food facility. You need a lot of money and expertise and food scientists and whatever else. And um, what happened when a lot of retailers started launching store brands in all these areas, this whole ecosystem of co-packers, co-manufacturers came up, you know, popped up in the world. Um, And suddenly you could get somebody to make you almost anything. Now, that last piece is something that I think is a little different for us because we really want to be makers. And, you know, we certainly have a lot of suppliers and a lot of people doing a lot of things for us. But, um, and, 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 you know, ingredients are important when you, when you make food. But, you know, we wanted to kind of bring back maker culture. You can't make one new product a week if somebody else is making it for you. You got to produce 10,000 of it and forget it. But never in my life, and I grew up in the food business, um, have I seen the ingredients that can allow somebody to start a food business today. And, you know, when you talk about an omni-channel business, it, you know, it means you can be in a, on a Whole Foods shelf, but you can also have a meaningful amount of product being sold on your website or on, you know, Thrive's website, you know, great platform for natural, healthy, amazing food. So there's just the ingredients 
um, have really changed. Um, That's what I'm and, curious about. Is we're the beneficiaries of that, and mm-hmm. you know, the, a lot of the food businesses that I've started way back in time or worked in way back in time didn't have all those elements. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm so curious about how you guys are able to produce for someone like Whole Foods enough, like volume, right? Yet at the same time, be able to produce such a wide variety of that seems like a logistical challenge or nightmare, depending on how you look at it. How are you guys doing that? Yeah, we're actually in, in, in we actually have three businesses um, because we have, you know, what we call retail, which is Whole Foods and Safeway and Loblaws and, you know, big retailers. And, you know, for that, you need your big Italian bottling line that's, you know. Go, go, go. You got it. Yeah. Um, and you need a lot of space. Vinegar does take a, a good amount of space. Um, so that's kind of one side of it. And, and we have a team that does that. And then we have a team that really, their job is to work on what we call experimental additions, that one product a week. And, you know, we don't need to make 10,000, 20,000 of those. We, we can make 500, 300, 100, 1,000. So we had a kit, I'll give you an example. We had a, a barbecue kit for Father's Day. It was four different sauces. And um, I think we made 500 of those. Um, and so you have literally in our facility, you have the artisanal, you know, yep. which is like a catering kitchen almost sitting next to your high speed kind of, you know, line. And then we have a third business, um, which is our wine proxy business. So back in January, we launched something we call wine proxies, which is a, a kind of non-alcoholic stand in for wine. Um, it's made with, you know, acid teas, herbs, bitters, fruit, a um, whole bunch of things, kind of complex, but non-alcoholic beverages. We, you know, we bottle it in a wine bottle wow. and you drink it in a wine glass, you eat it with food, you drink it with food. Um, so we have that business and that's a, a little team that manages kind of, we produce three new proxies a month for our subscribers. And then we're launching it at retail as well. So we actually have three businesses under one roof, but the core competency is not making food. It's it's managing all of the elements, right? This, they all share a supply chain. They all share food safety. They all share, you know, Alan kind of oversees all of the development within all those teams. And so that's uh, kind of how it works. <laughs> I, it makes sense to me now why your family said no, no more starting businesses because yeah. one one has already turned it into three. <laughs> I the love it. Very but true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, you said you've always been – in, in somewhat of the food industry. Talk to me about that. Like where did this history and love of food come from for you? I'm a child guinea, child guinea pig is how I describe it. But I grew up, um, my grandfather was an immigrant to Canada. And uh, soon after he arrived in Canada, he went to a chicken farm and he saw baby chicks and he thought, oh, those are so cute. I gotta get in the chicken business. Now, how do you think they're cute? And you then want to grow thousands of them and kill them. I don't know. But <laughs> he ended up in the chicken business in Canada. Um, and um, this is back in the late 60s. And um, so I grew up in, in a food family. Um, if, you've prob- if you've ever eaten a dinosaur-shaped chicken nugget called a Dino Buddy, and you probably have, or yes. if you haven't, you probably know somebody, you can blame my father for that. But that was probably their big innovation. Um, so we, uh, we made Dino Buddies and I, 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 they would come home and, you know, I would be the, the, the test taster. It'd be like, okay, hey, you know, little guy, do you like the, you know, and you, you would like it, not like it, my cousins, my, my brothers, you know, um, and all that. So that's what I grew up in. Um, <laughs> I, that business Amazing. was sold in 2003. Um, and I actually never formally went into it, you know, career-wise. I, I actually was a, I was a management consultant and I went to, hotel school at at Cornell and worked in the hospitality business with Four Seasons and Canyon Ranch and then ended up in the kind of creative agency world, you know, after the millennial kind of uh, pass there, I guess, in 2003. But um, probably, you know, there were two steps that got me back into food. One was if you run an innovation consultancy, you end up, you know, people come to you from PepsiCo and Diageo and Safeway and Starbucks and Waitrose. And so I, I did work from 2000, 
2007 to 2016 for every big food company on the planet, Nestle, like you name it, we did work for them. Um, and I kind of led that business. And I swore when I sold the consulting practice that I would stop you know, being paid for ideas that we hand off to large food companies that can't launch them because they're slow. Um, and though some of them were great, but um, they struggled with speed and innovation, sure. imagine. Um, I swore that I would get back into food and, and be hands-on. And um, one of the things that we helped incubate was a company called Tolerant Foods. My, my father um, decided he needed to seek karmic vindication from you know, all those chickens. And he got really interested in, in pulses, in organic lentils, peas, chickpeas. Um, and so we started a brand called Tolerant Foods, which was the first kind of brand to sell lentil-based pasta and pea-based pasta and all that. Um, and that business was sold to Barilla, I guess about three or four years ago, coming on four years. Wow. Um, and so, you know, kind of acid league kind of almost, you know, came out of that. And I ended up up in Canada and in, in buying a coffee company, a third wave coffee company and starting a sourdough bread company. And, and, uh, so I was kind of having fun with that when the, 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 as, as you described, the basement, uh, the Willy Wonka basement experience came to life. <laughs> a little history. Cause it kind that's of what I wanted. Me. Yeah. That's what I wanted. And, and for you, Alan too, like, where do you think your love and interest in food came from? Hmm. That's a good question. I think it started out as a pretty innocent hobby, you know, <laughs> like that slowly started dominating all other hobbies and frankly my life <laughs> I think during school I mean I, I you know I was going to school and studying economics initially and over time I realized you know I found myself like 12 day, 12 hours a day I was like learning about cooking cooking you know documenting my cooking you know just obsessed and it was you know I, you know, I actually did finish that degree but it was a struggle towards the end um, and, and on the back of it, I, I, I really couldn't bring myself to, to understand a world in which I wouldn't regret trying something in food. Yeah. And as you can imagine, you know, I'm spending a lot of this time just by myself, either on YouTube or, 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 or reading books. It's, it's, it's a lot of culinary stuff. That's, that's kind of the angle in which I, I started falling in love with food. It wasn't, it wasn't from like a, a, a as scientific, a, an angle. And so I went to, you know, culinary school for a bit. I, I cooked in kitchens in Toronto. And I think I spoke a little bit earlier about how I kind of fell out of love with that because it wasn't the world in which I thought it would be. And, um, you know, at the time, I, I, I think when I made my, my mind to go into food science, it was really just working at this, at this agency where there's a recipe development going on for, for kind of restaurants, but then there was also product development going on for Know, companies trying to with us trying to trying to launch into grocery stores and i think that was my first exposure really to the idea of, of developing products on a more scientific level and i think i think i was also becoming a little bit more interested in the science side and so yeah i mean my, as my love developed and my interest developed i kind of was angled towards food science and um i think ultimately you know, I, I, my parents are also entrepreneurs. They, they still run their business, which they started the year before I was born. Sounds like, you know, <laughs> sounds like a little bit unmanageable, just given what we're, we're doing here. I can't imagine having a child um, <laughs> right now, but, you know, they did it. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of grew up with, with entrepreneurs working together, running the business and running the family, I suppose. And, um, I think there was always a little bit of that in me that maybe I didn't either want to accept or, or, or what, but uh, certainly on the back of, you know, a few experiences in, in, in big food and, and going through the food science program, I think on the back of that meeting, Scott, Acid League idea, kind of like brainstorming. Yeah, I just, there's no way I could help myself, I don't think. I love it. I love it. Well, let's talk about the actual structure of the of the team and the company at this point. How, what is the what's the size of the team? What is the the kind of different functions and roles right now that are needed to support where you guys are currently at as a company? Sure. So we're we're, we're kind of I mean you know with, with production staff we're probably in, in the dozens, um, 
but I think let's start maybe with the founders because the founders yeah. and, and there's kind of one, there's a few people that are close to founders, but uh, when it comes to the four of us, so you have Alan that runs all product development. So that's designing every product we make, the supply chain, the how, the what, the science, the, the process. Um, you have Cole who runs sales. Um, so you have Ray who, Ray is, is, is an amazing person because for years I've wondered why is it that fashion companies have creative directors? Why can't a food company, you know, have a creative director? And so when we went to Ray, you know, Ray is kind of basically a founder. Um, and it was like, I want you to, you know, she's an art, amazing art director and creative. And we went to her and we said, okay, we're starting this food company and we want a creative director. He kind of looks at me like I'm crazy, you know, talking about you know but but you know the minute you kind of talk about well think about how a fashion house right how a, a supreme a hermes like how they think about you know every touch point every surface you know what what is the label what's the label paper made out of like these are things we think about right not just what's on the label but the texture of the label wow and the touch and the feel and the top and you know obviously it takes time to get it all amazing but you could see there's a certain ethos of the brand whether whether it's photography whether it's curation whether it's content so ray it kind of was the creative director sean um who i've worked with for almost 20 years he came up with the name um he's our cmo um and uh you know he kind of covers all things marketing works very closely with with ray and nicole who runs our online business um you know, and you can kind of keep going. Um, we have Martin who heads production. Um, he's an engineer and comes from kind of manufacturing background. Um, and, and we've slowly kind of added, you know, roles and people. Uh, we have a winemaker. He doesn't make wine. He makes wine proxies, Devin. Um, and we have an assistant winemaker, Yash. And he helped, you know. So it's kind of evolved, um, you know, as, as the business has kind of evolved. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, what's the current what's the current priority and focus for the business right now? Is it scale? Is it quality? Is it a new uh, new territory you're trying to enter into? What's the what's the focus right now? Everything isn't an answer, but um, I think it's it's managing scale um, because we're trying to. I, I think scale is the best description. Um, you know, we're, we're taking our wine proxy business from online to retail restaurant and food service and food delivery. So we're launching proxies in Portland and in Nashville. Um, Sean Brock, one of Sean Brock's restaurants, uh, new restaurants in Nashville um, reached out and was really interested in proxies. So we're gonna, you're gonna start to see wine proxies show up on restaurant wine lists and, huh. and um, in some retail stores um, and in some kind of food delivery platforms beyond, you know, our website, you're going to see Whole Foods um, and other retailers launch a whole new kind of range of products. Um, in the coming months, we're launching our balsamics, kind of alternate flavored balsamics in a, in a few weeks. We're launching broth bombs, which are these kind of like ultra concentrated liquid broth that make broth bombs, broth, broth bombs. Oh, <laughs> I thought you said bongs. <laughs> that would be a different business. Being like, good God, you guys are mad scientists. What are you doing up there? <laughs> We're not that mad. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, so it's, um, it, we're launching uh, Living Tonics. We talked about it's launching next week. Um, yeah. That the kind of vinegar product. And then uh, Labor Day, we're launching just in advance of Q4, what we call the Living Pantry, which is, a curated set of, you know, kind of high-end cooking condiments that are the taste as great as they look. So they're just designed as everything we do for your countertop, your tabletop, but really upgraded, you know, higher kind of quality, like ultra kind of interesting condiments that kind of are curated as a whole set. So you guys are scale is really, I, I think scale you know, in all those areas is probably the, the, the one line that connects them to our biggest challenge. Okay. Behind uh, that lives scaling production, scaling the team, scaling quality, scaling purchasing. Yeah. 
But right now, is it scale of reach, like just getting into those new restaurants and markets and that kind of stuff? Or is it have you already expanded too fast no. and now you're trying to keep up with the infrastructure of no, supporting it's, it? It's, it's continued to open doors. I think we're kind of pacing ourselves nicely. Um, it's, you know, it's tough. Like when you when you think about our wine proxies business, it's not easy to get into restaurants in every city and every state. And so we're kind of going slow. And, you know, that's why we're starting in Portland and Nashville and Toronto. And then we'll kind of slowly add markets from there. So we're actually, um, with wine proxies, it's kind of the opposite. We want to do it right. We want to be in the right stores and, you know, in restaurants that understand us and not just kind of throw it at, you know, at 700 grocery stores in the Midwest or whatever it is. Um, so uh, I'd say it's a, a, a kind of purposeful and intention-driven, you know, business at this point like it's it's very much about kind of having clarity of intention yeah talk to me about this idea of the wine proxy you know i had a company on here called drink monday and they they make gin and uh, whiskey that are alcohol free and are beautiful like the packaging the taste they, they worked really hard to get the taste very like almost identical to gin and whiskey yet it's alcohol free and they have their own reason behind that. And that, what is your reason for creating these wine proxies that are taste like alcohol, yeah. but have no alcohol in them? Sure. So it kind of goes back to last summer. Um, we were trying to figure out what our first beverage would be. And, you know, vinegar is, is the kind of core ingredient in shrubs, which a lot of bartenders are using. And we thought, well, we could create some shrubs and then we went, well, yeah, we could do that. What about a canned shrub? And, and we were kind of playing around in the beverage space because vinegar is great in beverage. And so I'm online, we're doing some research and we discover this thing called Posca. Probably never heard of it, but it's known as the world's first energy drink. It was what was drunk by the Roman army. Huh. And what they did is they took, water back then wasn't safe and you don't want to be drunk on the battlefields. You know, you can't just drink wine all day. So um, what they did is they created a drink that was made with honey, red wine, vinegar, herbs, spices, and that's what they would drink, right? The vinegar would kill the bacteria, the honey would give them some energy and some you know, herbs and whatnot. And we thought, ah, okay, let's, let's make Posca and we'll do it in a wine bottle. Like we're not ready to can it at you know, 10,000 you know, hectoliters. We'll just, we'll do it really high end. We'll do it in a wine bottle. And so we started doing that and we were out on the patio I think it was late August and we were drinking it in, I, I got some wine glasses. I thought, okay. And it was in a wine bottle. We corked it. Um, think of like high-end kombucha, but instead of, you know, kombucha, it was made with some of our delicious kind of living vinegars. And I, you know, there was a kind of cathartic moment where we all looked at each other and we went, wait a second. And the thought I'll, I'll kind of bring it to life a little bit was, wait a second, you have everybody jumping into this non-alcoholic beer thing, right? You've, you've probably seen yep. a lot of it. You have, you know, a ton of people jumping into non-alcoholic spirits, starting with Seedlip and now many others. And where is the middle? Like wine is a huge thing. And I kind of went back to some restaurant meals that I've had at, you know, great restaurants over the years, whether that's, you know, Manresa in, in, in California or, you know, Aloe in Toronto or Noma in Copenhagen. And, you know, you sit down and, and, you know, you're having your tasting menu and they say, would you like, you know, wine pairings? Or we have our non-alcoholic pairings. And there was a moment where this all came together. It was like Posca meets kind of fancy, not even fancy, great complex non-alcoholic beverages for food meets this kind of business opportunity, which is everybody's, fighting over non-alcoholic spirits and non-alcoholic beer and in some cases non-alcoholic ready to drink cocktails but nobody's doing this mm. so we we quickly this is like already september and we go okay we got to launch this for dry january and you know we start developing and we we call you know alan and cole's friend devin and we like we know you make wine but we we got something better here do you want to make wine with no alcohol he thought we were crazy um but we convinced him and we, we just dove right in. We're like, we're launching in January. We called, you know, our, our PR firm. We said, we, we got this like amazing thing. And, um, and what we did through the fall was figure out how to, how to do it and how to do it really well. Like 
because the idea was not to mimic wine. Okay. Right. But we can, the inspiration starts in a lot of places. We can mimic a terroir. So we have, uh, we had a product earlier this year called Terre Sauvage. I think it was called Terre Sauvage, but it was meant to evoke the flavors of a Canadian forest. So it was Labrador tea and spruce tips and maple syrup and, you know, apples and acid and, you know, or we have red wine analogs that are, that use sometimes things like black tea for tannin and maybe Sangiovese grape juice and, um, you know, walnut bitters and, and things like that. So we just started crafting and bottling and then we were crazy enough to say, we'll make three different ones every month. <laughs> but, you know, what, what, what this all has led to is literally thousands of, like, you know, thousands of people kind of discovering a wine alternative that they didn't have. And, you know, it's very different than de-alcoholized wine. You don't want to drink de-alcoholized wine. <laughs> you know, I think I'm, what I'd like to add on the back of that is like, it's, when Scott says we're not trying to mimic wine, it's just, it's just the flavor, right? Like what's beautiful about wine and what's so unique about wine is actually not really the flavor necessarily, but structurally what it does when you're having it with food. Mm. Scott, touched, Scott touched on the tannins. Yeah, there's a tannin structure that's actually really unique to wine. Like there's not really any other beverage that really has a, a significant tannin structure. You know, acidity is incredibly important. Balancing, you know, sweetness is incredibly important. The mouthfeel is incredibly important. These things are incredibly difficult to achieve, actually. And once we figured out how to do it, I think the part of the reason why we wanted to do three, three, uh, three a month was because yeah, yeah, we could we could recreate wines. You know, we could, we could recreate Sangiovese. We can make an Al, you know an Alsatian Gortstraminer kind of analog. But what we're able to do once we deconstructed and then reconstructed what was beautiful about wine and functionally what like wine actually does to a meal, which makes you want to drink wine with your meal and not, let's say, whiskey with your meal in most cases. <laughs> yeah. It really is like, okay, we can do what wine does, but we can actually do what wine can, which is taste like other things like the, you know, Terre Sauvage, you know, based on, based on the Canadian landscape. We can actually make it taste, you know, it, like anything. Uh, that we put our mind to, you know, the, the, the sky's the limit. And yet it still brings functionally everything that's great about wine. Um, so we, I don't know, we were just really excited about it. <laughs> I love it. Guys, you have to do some kind of food show. I'm telling you, I just, just talking to you, I'm already like, man, I'm a boring dad. Like I should be <laughs> exposing my kids to these beautiful flavors and rethinking night like even for me like a nighttime cap i'm like i want a tea like this or like a proxy like this that would taste really good that has nothing to do with trying to party at this stage of my life like i just want to have enjoyable food with dinner and salads to taste awesome and you know fruits to come alive and things like that and i'm looking at your literally this is the first time i've ever gotten on the website while i'm talking to somebody i'm listening to you i promise i'm on your damn website at nectarine of the gods what is that that sounds amazing Garden Heat Vinegar, you've got this, uh, what is this one? Pink Peppercorn Honey Yuzu Vinaigrette. I'm like, please do a cooking show. Feature these freaking products. Probably as overdue. It's as probably well overdue. as like open our mind to the kinds of summer salads we could make and mm -hmm. refreshing drinks we could make with our friends sitting around the pool, you know, that kind of thing. Because uh, I would watch that for me. I want to, I want to have a less boring experience of food like i feel like both of you guys are kind of mad scientists but like adventurers um seeing life differently tasting life differently that kind of thing right there it is call the I'm production like, team out call the production <laughs> team now let me ask this for everybody listening i went to acidleague.com is that the best place for them if they want to see the innovation that's coming out regularly or is there a way do people sign up for how yeah. do people encounter you guys? Uh, so yeah, acidly.com or our email list. Cause our email list, when we release, when we drop something, whatever that is, um, Umezu of the gods, you know, the nectarine product or anything else, that's where it goes. And so I mean, Instagram's, like, good too. Instagram's good too. Yeah, okay. And do people purchase directly through you is, uh, through the website or something like that? Are they able to just, yeah. 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 Gotcha. I mean, a lot of our products are in, you know, 
like a growing list of stores. I think we're, we just hit 1500 stores in North America. Okay. Are any of them down my way near Atlanta? All the Whole Foods. All the Whole Foods. All right. Yeah. Whole Foods has got a trip. I'm going to be making a trip soon. Many others, but Whole Foods on it nationally is the easiest uh, way. Okay. Cool. All right, guys. I know I want to respect your time. You've got, both got meetings coming up. So let's, let's dive into our lightning round questions. Uh, Alan, I'm going to start with you. Our first question is, if you could ingrain one message into the entire organization, what would that message be? Hmm. I think it would be to ensure that you express yourself, express your passion, express your talent, really just be yourself, honestly. Yeah. That's something that we, I mean, it plays into why we, part of why we called ourselves Acid League to begin with, you know, the, the league part obviously. Um, we're a very collaborative bunch. And, you know, when, when I'm creating, you know, when I'm creating something that's maybe Vietnamese inspired, this, all, frankly, a lot more depth, I think, just as a Vietnamese um, Canadian, who's, you know, experienced, you know, food and culture from, you know, in Vietnam, have family in Vietnam, saw the evolution of, you know, how my family's changed you know, coming to Canada, living in Canada and cooking and, you know, experiencing food in Canada. I think, I think that's not to be underestimated um, with other people's experiences. And it's something that we're always interested in. Um, that's like a lens that we look at food through. Yeah. Um, amongst other things. And so, yeah, I, we really value, you know, people expressing themselves, I'd say. I love it. Okay, cool. Question number two for you, Scott. What is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also, what was the worst? Um, well, uh, the best advice was probably from my father, which is always care about people. That a business is not about an idea, a brand, you know, a taste of this or that. It's about the people that, that make it and the people that make a great company and build a great culture and always care about the people in the business that you're running and building. And, you know, it starts with that. And if you create a great environment for people, um, then, you know, you're, you're always going to have a great company and, and everything kind of emanates from that center. Um, so I say that's the, the best advice. Um, I think the worst advice, um, you know, I've been, I've been given a lot of advice over the years that says never get into the food business. You know, the, the running joke from the graduate is, you know, the future is in plastics. I can't tell you how much, and it's probably why earlier in my career, I stayed away from the food business. Mm. Um, because, you know, you talk to anybody, um, even in the MBA world, and it's like, never, don't get into the food business. So it's a terrible business. Yeah, you know, you it's too competitive, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. All that, you know, you can't compete with the big guys, you know. Well, thankfully, you know, I didn't listen to that. Yeah, I love that. Okay, question number three. What currently, we'll do, well, Alan, we'll go back and forth here. So, Alan, for you, what currently causes you the most stress or worry in your part in leading the organization? And then, and Scott, I actually want to hear the same from you. Yes, this is a tough one for me because... And I tend not to, I try not to really preoccupy my mind with worrying or, or stressing out over things. I'm pretty laid back. He's very uh, good at that. You could tell. Like, I, like <laughs> it, it, I remember like growing up and, and playing sports, people were like, and he hey. drinks coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you would never know it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think people have to learn to maybe like work with me just for the first bit because they're just like, why, why is he so chill right now? This is a very stressful situation. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, I, I think my biggest worry is, it, it's, it's not so much a worry, it, I think it is slowly happening. Um, but my, my biggest worry is that, you know, when people join, let's say for the first time, I think, given their past experiences, they are afraid, this goes back to the, the first question, they're, they're maybe afraid to express themselves or, or something like that. I, it's something that I have to encourage. My, my biggest fear would be that someone is just, you know, trying to fit into what we are, <laughs> what, what they perceive, you know, us to be. Right. And, and, and not, 
and not bring themselves to to the table. Um, that creative expression, that freedom to to think outside the box, kind of thing. Their uniqueness, their you know, their individual kind of being. So I, it, it's something that I I don't know if it's, it's stressful. It's worrying because I don't want to become you know another company that has a singular culture that everyone has to like you know fall into in a particular way and act a particular way and they're scared to you know and you know express themselves essentially love it all right how about for you scott what keeps me up at night yep extending the culture um you know continuing the culture a culture of curiosity a culture of innovation a culture of quality a culture of you know, attention to detail. Um, we're a really young team and we, we, you know, that's just kind of how things have evolved. But I think when you're trying to break orthodoxies and, and do things differently, um, you don't always, it doesn't always come with the same dosage of significant experience, right? You, it, not to say that somebody with a lot of experience can't also think differently and do differently and move beyond orthodoxies, but I think we're trying to do things differently and go beyond some of the orthodoxies of, old school food business. And I think we're trying to maintain this culture of curiosity and innovation and, and compassion. And um, it's not always easy when, you know, you're trying to produce 10,000 cases of something or, you know, trying to figure out how to get, you know, wine proxies to 32 different states or, you know, whatever the, the issue is or. Yeah. So it's, it's um, inevitably in, in a business like this, you know, you have, challenges every day and uh and a matrix organization is you know where you want to make sure everybody's talking and communicating is it's it's not easy to build an organization that isn't you know siloed in an old school way so that's probably what i spend the most time thinking about is cool. how to maintain that culture cool totally makes sense all right scott number four is to you what is your BHAG for the business? The big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, <laughs> a deer just walked by, literally 10 feet from my face, a baby deer. <laughs> With that question, that is not my big, hairy, audacious goal. But it is hairy and it is literally it's right there. <laughs> the, strangest th the strangest thing just happened. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think... Um, when we say that we want to build a platform brand around all things acid, you know, sometimes people think we're crazy. It's really hard to build a platform brand. You know, very few, uh, you know, companies have done it. I think that's, I think that is our goal. Um, and I think to, to, you know, become a meaningful new brand in the foodscape, um, not for ego's sake, um, like it's just not who we're about. It's about, as you say, bringing these flavors and these ideas like, you know, there's, there's, it's, it is incredible when you see, and social media is this great feedback loop where you see somebody, you know, literally using the pink peppercorn yuzu dressing, you know, on a salad and it's like, you know, OMG, da, 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 da. Like that is, you know, the, or the experience of you kind of sitting there in the morning and go, oh my God, I'm not drinking like, you know, rotten yes. feet. Like that is what we want to do. And I, I think, um, you know, hopefully, will succeed in doing it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not easy to build a platform brand. It's not easy to build a platform brand that is global in scale, but I think that's the ambition. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Well, I'm, I'm rooting for that. I want more of this in the world. All right. Question number five, Alan, for you, here's our creative question and you like to support the creative things. So I like to think of this like a, like a Rorschach test. You can take it however you want. Okay. If you could hop into a DeLorean, go back to the past, and you get to tell yourself just one thing out the driver's side window as you drive by, when would you go back, and what would you tell that younger version of yourself? It's hmm. a good question. And it can't be buy Bitcoin. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's maybe high on the list, but I don't know if it's the first. Um, yeah, I think I think what I would tell myself is quite easy. It's it's to follow your heart, honestly. I, you know, life's short. 
ultimately. It's, it's you know, it sounds cliche, it's been said forever, but ultimately I think that's the one thing that I would say. When I would say it, you know, anytime I feel, <laughs> I feel lucky to, to travel back to any time to say it, but I guess I'll say 12 arbitrarily. It seems like good information at that point, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, does anything come to mind for you? Something you could have used to hear. Yeah. I just love to go back in time in a DeLorean. That in and of itself <laughs> would be amazing. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, like, I would love to go back in time. My, my family pre-World War II ran a, you know, you, you probably heard Dean and DeLuca and kind of gourmet food stores and all this. You know, my family before the war in Budapest ran uh, a kind of little grocery store. I'd love to go back. I'd, I'd love to go back in time and, and be a fly on the wall there. Yeah. Um, that would be amazing. Heck yeah. Guys, this has been so fun, man. Thank you for making time to be here with us. Both of you for sharing your passion, sharing your, your, your product, obviously. Uh, but you got a big fan of us here on the zero to 5,000 podcast and excited to both taste promote and buy your products uh, and, and wish you guys so much luck in the future. So uh, thank you again for being here with us. Thank you for the interest. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Founders. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.